Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. It is Wednesday, May 12th. And we are reporting, you know, we're uh, recording, I said reporting, we're recording later in the day because it's been it's been a big news day. There's a lot of different things happening, but they all turn in different ways on the events of January 6th. We've had a hearing up on Capitol Hill that is about the insurrection, and the main witness is the former acting Secretary of Defense, the guy who was in charge on January 6th. And we're going to talk about that, some some several news developments that that came out of that. And, you know, as, as we've as we have discussed uh, many times on the site and on the podcast, there's we have a broad sense of what happened on January 6th. I mean, we, you know, we know we know a lot and we know we have some we have a bare bones understanding of what was happening on the administration side, what Trump was doing, what they were doing at uh, the Pentagon, what other players knew and what they did. We know that Kevin McCarthy called President Trump at one point and said, hey, call your, you know, get your people to stand down. And we seem to know in a very general sense that basically when the when the insurrectionists broke their way into the Capitol complex, President Trump's original feeling was awesome. These guys, you know, they really care about the stolen election. And then there was this, uh, you know, maybe it's all over a period of 90 minutes or something like that. But there's people calling from Capitol Hill. Hey, we're in trouble here. Trump is at least resisting, you know, kind of slow rolling, doesn't want to take anybody's calls. And, and from the very beginning, it's been our understanding that Trump basically just kind of refuses to do anything for the reasons one would expect. And it's Mike Pence who kind of gives the order, even though that's not really how the system's supposed to run. And so we have a lot of new information that we're going to discuss in a, in, in a few moments, because it, it, the details here really matter. You know, when did Trump find out what was happening at the Capitol? When did he get the first requests to deploy the military to, you know, speak in his own voice to calm things down or something like that? And what did he do? Did he just kind of sit on his hands? Did he basically say, serves you right? You know, for rejecting me as president. So we're going to get into that. There's 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 a bunch of details there and as we record, I think the te- the the hearing is ongoing. So there's you know there's and there's even um one development that we just uh found out about as we were getting ready to record. So we're going to we're going to try to figure out what 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 that's about. The other thing is we had this morning that Liz Cheney was uh booted from the Republican House leadership. And of course, that is all about January 6th and the big lie. And of course, the big lie is is inseparable from January 6th because that's what the insurrection was about, the big lie, the stolen election, uh, you know, forcing all that, you know, you know, all this kind of stuff. Now, we've known for a while, we've known for probably a week, I would say, that Cheney was on the way out, that she was done. And we've had a a succession of things. Uh, Steve Steve Scalise basically said, I'm done with her. We should boot her. And then I believe it was over the weekend, uh, maybe Sunday, that uh, Kevin McCarthy finally said explicitly, okay, we're done with her. We're kicking her out. And this morning it happened. Now, the, the thing that really got my attention was they didn't have a recorded vote. They did a voice vote. Now, 
when 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 uh, when we went through this uh, three or four weeks ago, I don't know exactly when it was. You know, about a month ago, and Cheney uh, held her held her spot pretty decisively by you know two to one or something like that. It's a secret or recorded vote. You know, sort of like the, the democracy style, so to speak, right? Where you actually, where people actually vote. And what they did here was just a voice vote where he says, you know, everybody who says I, I, you know, everybody who says nay, nay, you know, like <laughs> one dude, nay. Now, obviously, the uh, Republican leadership has a lot of interest in a voice vote because we know the consequences of getting on Trump's wrong side. It, that's what this is all about. Cheney got on Trump's wrong side, so she's on the way out. Now, my sense is that they didn't have a voice vote because I suspect the margin would not be as decisive as they would like. I'm not saying I think Cheney would have would have retained her seat. I think that's clearly not the case. But I suspect it would have been maybe something like two to one against her, maybe even three to one against her. Um, but if that's the case, it means like a good quarter or a third of the caucus doesn't like what's happening. And in in the Trump model, that's not okay. Those people are all enemies. So I think that's why this happened. And I think it shows us that uh, the, the situation in the Republican caucus is more brittle than they're letting on. So we're going to talk about all those things. Uh, before we do, let me remind you that uh, spring would not be spring without all the springy stuff that you do. There's frisbee, barbecues, picnics, some variation of those things, and iced coffee. You can ring in the springtime with Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew kit. Just add water to the reusable store and pour pouch and brew overnight for velvety smooth coffee you can drink iced or hot. Bring it to the park, take it camping, or even add a shot of vodka if, if you're feeling adventurous. Hey, it's spring. That's what you do. You're allowed to do all, all sort of strange, crazy stuff. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, Kate, uh, you, you you were watching, um, uh, uh, you know, watching the testimony with our, uh, you know, and our whole team was sort of deployed on these, on these different stories, had this, had this big story. Uh, what's the, give us the latest. What happened in the, in this testimony today? So like you say, there were a battery of congressional committees holding hearings today that kind of got at different pieces of January 6th. And the one I was watching with our colleague Josh Kavinsky uh, featured the Chris Miller, who was the defense secretary during January 6th, Jeffrey Rosen, who was the AG, um, and then the current chief of the Metro PD. Uh, DC's police force. So Josh and I were watching it. And during a line of questioning from uh, AOC, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to Miller, she's trying to nail down some the weirdness and the delay of the National Guard deployment, which has been one of the pieces of January 6th that's still shrouded in mystery, given how many months ago it was. Um, because Guardsmen didn't get to the Capitol until, you know, like around four hours after the building was breached. So she kind of took him through. Let's, step by let's start by kind of start by clarifying the, the timeline. When does the breach happen? When roughly do people end, enter the Capitol complex? Let's start with kind of putting that po time post in the in the in the timeline. I think that's around one thirty. OK, so one thirty. But there's also a difference between when they breach the perimeter and when they breach the building itself. But I think that's the time that you were left with no doubt that this was, you know, a potentially violent mob and no longer a rally. Um, Understood. So, yeah, so she takes him through it. And some of this we know because the Defense Department has released a timeline uh, from this day, but it's it's not fully clear and especially with the National Guard, things have been muddied a lot by people confusing the Guard being mobilized with the Guard being deployed, which are two different things. You know, being mobilized is like bringing them on ready alert and they can bring them to bases that are nearby where the event is taking place. But deployment is, you know, you can actually go to the place and go help defend it. Um, so in his... So kind of like the difference between like get ready and actually do it, basically. Right. 
Right. And so in his testimony to AOC, he says at the beginning that at 304, he authorized full deployment of the National Guard. You know, so just that fact alone kind of sets you back on your heels because the guard didn't arrive until a few minutes after five. So so that's kind of the, the timeline we're looking at. But then she pushes him further and he basically contradicts himself later and says, oh, no, you know, I it was the mobilization order he gave at three and the deployment order didn't come in until 432. And in between that time, William Walker, the commander general of the National Guard was drawing up basically like a plan for how these troops would be deployed. Um, So during the hearing, Miller kind of tries to pass the buck and say, I gave the order. He could go on. He could go if he wanted. He could have deployed unilaterally, you know, since three. But he was doing this plan and then the order was given around 432 and that's that. And he he really does purposely switch into the passive voice when he's talking about the plan being authorized at 432. And then what AOC also laid out in her questioning, which um, Carolyn Maloney, who's the chair of the House Oversight Committee that was holding this, got at as well, is that in between that three and that 432, Miller had calls with Muriel Bowser, the, the mayor of D.C., with Pelosi, with Schumer, all panicked and asking for help. But it's not until he has a call with Mike Pence, a very brief call, the AP reported this, that a few minutes later, that deployment order is finally given. And during that call, per AP's reporting, Pence, who is not in the line of command, asked him to, quote, clear the Capitol. And minutes after that, we saw the order actually being acted upon. And so during this testimony, the thing that she got him to do is to contradict himself and say, you know, define specifically that that was actually the mobilization order, not the deployment order that he gave at three. And then you dig into this a little bit and realize that the reason why the National Guard commander was spending time, you know, sketching up an outline while the the building was under attack, you know, while this attack was unfurling is because Miller and the Army Secretary Brian McCarthy put these unusual restrictions on Walker's use of the D.C. National Guard, which basically came down to saying, we want to approve it before you get to use your forces, you know, which Walker has testified to Congress, that is unusual because in times like this, in emergencies, you know, you don't want the leaders of the forces to have to write an outline before they get to deploy them and go have them help. Um, And so during the questioning with AOC, you know, Miller very much kind of tried to like wash his hands of it, say Walker can do what he wants, you know, they're his forces. But in reality, you know, Miller outranks Walker and he said, I want to have approval. And a senior DOD official has already testified to Congress, uh, kind of summing it up that he wanted to have approval of the National Guard's activities that day. When this kind of comes on the heels of Uh, a new information from his opening statement where he says that he was worried about creating the appearance of a military coup if uniformed troops were deployed to the Capitol to help, you know, fend off the civilian one. So it's this really kind of murky situation where we see during his testimony today, he only really made it murkier, which just brings up all these questions about why are you trying to obfuscate this this timeline, you know, why is he being so squirrely about the fact that he's the one who gave the order at 432 for the guard to finally be deployed? What was the cause of the delay? And did he only act because Mike Pence called him and told him to? You know, he denies that. But those are kind of the questions we're left with after the hearing today. Well, OK, so isn't do we know if the is it? I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying that it is not true that the guy, the commander of the National Guard, had the ability to act as soon as he felt he was ready. So, so th- this idea that hey, I gave the order and 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 I was relying on uh, you know that general to kind of figure out a plan and do it that that's not the case that that general had to run the plan uh, by the defense secretary. And now, I mean, I guess it's a funny thing because in the abstract, deploying the military to the U.S. Capitol is a pretty big decision, right? So so there's a lot of logic to uh, 
you don't want to necessarily kind of, you know, defer that to an operational level decision making that you want, you know, civilians to have final say. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, I mean, what is there to plan exactly? Or, or I guess to put it differently, if you've got a crisis, you, you just need to get there. Um, and you sort of, I mean, you know, this is why they're the generals and I'm not, I mean, if, if you have, uh, if you had had, you know, God forbid, what, what was it, what at least seems to have been some people's plan that you were rounding up the sort of everyone in the line of succession and like taking them captive or executing them. I, I would think you just get over there as soon as possible. You don't come up with a plan. I mean, that, that, that's like exigent circumstances. So where does this uh, get us? Um, does it, is our understanding that, or based on the earlier testimony from this general who commands the, the National Guard, is it at least true that he was drawing up a plan? Um, and, and I guess he was drawing up a plan because basically Miller told him he had to draw up a plan and get his approval before he could act. Yeah. So yes, but there are still pieces of this that just don't line up. For instance, why did it take an hour and a half to draw up this, you know, what they call a concept of operation? You know, it's not a novel. He's basically, the leaders just said they want to have justification for deploying the military, which as you say, sure, that makes sense. That sounds like a good safeguard to have in place. So why did it take a whole hour and a half before he heard back you know, for, to make the plan and hear back from approve or and get the order. And then even after that, there are still questions because per the DOD timeline that the deployment order comes out at 432. Walker says he heard nothing of it until 508. And he's waiting with his guys, you know, on buses ready to go in. And he's just waiting, 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 waiting. And it finally comes in, you know, almost 40 minutes after Miller says he gave the order. So, you know, at this point, we right. know someone is not telling the truth unless there was some big colossal miscommunication. But, you know, Miller saying that Walker could have gone ahead unilaterally seems to really conflict with all the testimony we've heard before, in addition to a memo that the Washington Post obtained, kind of drawing out that they wanted Walker to ask permission before he deployed uh, the National Guard in the days before January 6th. So, you know, it seems like Miller's not being quite truthful in his testimony, um, you know, or maybe more generously, he's getting the timeline mixed up. But the fact that someone of his stature, the former Secretary of Defense, in his testimony mixed up mobilization and deployment, that seems a bit fishy to me because he he definitely knows the difference between those terms. And it almost seems like he's kind of using the fact that right. lay people don't necessarily know the difference between those terms to muddy up the timeline a bit. Yeah, I guess it, what, what I kind of struggle with is that, um, you know, I, I'm not a general. I know that e even when you are using a relatively small number of troops, you you need to have a, you know, who's going to go where. So I, I, I don't, um, I don't feel, you know, I, I don't know if it takes 90 minutes to kind of to, to, put together a plan in, in, in that sense. I'm sure it's not instant. I mean, th th that kind of presses the question of like, oh, you know, we, why were you starting from a cold start here? Right. I mean, why, why did this, right. uh, and, and do you really need a, um, do you really need a plan again, what plan means, uh, in, in what are clearly exigent circumstances, you know, the, 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 uh, police mobilize all the time um, in response to emergencies, and you 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 just respond. You don't you don't you know kind of bring out your your notebook and start like you know kind of speculating or drawing up a, a plan. So uh, it, as you said, it's kind of it is kind of a, a, a mission. So here's another question. I seem to remember from when we first started on this, just in the hours and days after January 6th, that there was at least reporting or at least the claim that Trump had already, um, uh, you know, delegated authority over this to the people at the Pentagon, whether that's the um, 
you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or the defense secretary. So sort of suggesting that they didn't need President Trump's order to do this. He had already now, you know, chain of command stuff works in all sorts of different ways. Um that they had the authority to act. So the idea that, um, you know, Trump didn't answer the calls or he, you know, refused to give the order that that's not really the case. What's our best understanding on that front now? Did they need him to give an order? Um, You know, I'm really not sure of that. Miller said during his testimony that he didn't speak to Trump at all on January 6th. You know, it's, it's hard to put a picture together because the other kind of key witness there was Jeff Rosen, who was AG during this time. And he had a meeting with Trump on January 3rd, um, you know, which was reported to be while Trump was basically trying to grill everyone around him about overthrowing the election or how he could best do that. Um, right. But Rosen stonewalled all all hearing long. He basically wouldn't answer any questions. But when it came to that meeting, Josh and I also wrote about this, the, the range of excuses he offered for why he couldn't talk about it was just almost comical because like every single question this came out, especially during an exchange with Gerald Connolly, who's a representative from Virginia. But almost every answer, he gave a different reason for why he couldn't talk. The first one, he said, you know, I'm a lawyer, kind of seeming to hint at some lawyer client or attorney client privilege thing. You know, the next one, he said, you know, was talking about my conversations with the president in the Oval Office. I'm just not authorized to talk about them, which almost makes it seem like he's gesturing in the, in the direction of executive privilege. Then he cited the ongoing inspector general investigation and then kind of wrapped it up by saying, you know what, uh, my counsel, DOJ and the committee settled on ground rules before this committee and I can't stray from them. So, you know, every question was a different excuse about why he couldn't talk about the meeting, couldn't talk the nature of the meeting, couldn't talk about what was discussed in the meeting, um, just would give absolutely no insight to that. Interesting, because I, I, I need to refresh my memory on this, but a, a former president's ability to invoke executive privilege is, is tenuous. Um, you know, it's, it's basically, he doesn't have one. The current president has it. A former president doesn't have th- that privilege to invoke. Now, given in, in, in normal political times, generally speaking, the current president will defer to a former president in, in, you know, in executive privilege terms. And often, even if they are of different parties, they will have common interests with the idea that you're that you are protecting the institutional privileges of the presidency we don't have it's it's not unique but it is uh, it is um it's not the norm in a case like this when like the old guy was trying to overthrow the government and so the new guy doesn't necessarily have common interest there or at least that's the idea um and uh so i didn't i didn't even know where that comes down. Certainly there's no like attorney client privilege. I mean, it's, it's executive, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, the president is, you know, he's not the president's personal lawyer, but so, okay. So along those lines, what, what seems to have happened just before we started recording is, is that, um, Miller, so we're now we're back again to the secretary, you know, the acting secretary of defense. And again, another, it's another, dimension of this story that both of these guys are actings. Neither of them have ever been uh, confirmed to, to head these two departments, which is plays into the mix here. That Miller said, apparently in a meeting on January 4th, is a little unclear from the account I heard of this, whether it was the 3rd or the 4th, that Trump said, use the military to do whatever is necessary to protect the insurrectionists. Now, this this is either two or three days before. So he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be saying insurrectionist. The idea would, you know, my protesters, basically, the people who uh, are protesting about the stolen election to use the military to protect their First Amendment rights to protest. Um, <laughs> it, it's pretty hard. You know, there's a lot to unpack here. Like one thing to unpack is defend, defend them from who? Right. I mean, defend them from the local police, defend them from I mean, the the whole federal government is still under the management of, of Donald Trump. So who, again, 
defend them against who? There's no counter protesters. I mean, maybe conceivably Trump didn't know that was going to be the case. In any case, the idea that if if this account is right, the idea that he was pushing uh, the DOD to back up his his protesters, that certainly adds a significant new um, you know playing piece to the board. Because if if the if the if the orders if the if the you know it's it's even hard to call these orders you know the 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 we have a professionalized government <laughs> it's not just the sort of the random remarks of the president the president <laughs> gives orders for the military you know do this here's an operation I, you know i i'm issuing a command as commander in chief to do this if the president just sort of says like hey man protect my guys you know protect their rights the a Secretary of Defense is going to get a pretty clear idea where the president's mind is. Those are my guys. You protect my guys. That's the order. That's the that's the message I'm give, I'm giving you. But again, we have a, a a sort of a professional system. You give orders. You give orders. You know, I, I believe under uh, Goldwater Nichols, which is the big uh, uh, Defense Department reform bill about 35 years ago. President gives the gives an order to the Secretary of Defense. Secretary of Defense gives gives orders to um, I, I don't remember exactly whether it goes to the Chairman of the, of, of the uh, Joint Chiefs or it goes to the uh, what are now called um, Commandant Commanders. I believe you know what used to be the whatever. In any case, the point being, it's a little hard to execute the Commander in Chief's orders if he's just kind of shooting the shit and talking <laughs> you know talking trash about his about his protesters. But to the extent that the that the Secretary of Defense understood where Trump's head was at, he is going to be understandably kind of reluctant to deploy federal military against those people because Trump's made clear those are his people, um, and that uh, I think what we're what we're what we're um, not you and I, but what you know the collective we is 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 dancing around here is that. People at the Pentagon knew those are Trump's people, and and they report to the president, and they're going to be pretty reluctant to mobilize the military against the president's people. And yeah. but it's going to get a little weird when they're when they're storming the Capitol building, and the 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 uh you know the members of Congress are are begging for help, and it's seems pretty clear that's the delay. And now they're all this stuff about well, uh, you know, this took a while and took a while to get the word out to the guys in the buses and stuff like that. So <laughs> I, you know, I guess this is why they're kind of dancing and, and, and trying to come up with these, these rationales. Right. And then I think, you know, for better or for worse, Rosen and Miller both came across as people who don't want to talk about these facts with any specificity, you know, along with Rosen's stonewalling on almost, you know, on a lot of questions, not just about that meeting. He also refused to call what happened an insurrection. You know, he said it was abhorrent to him, but he wouldn't use that specific word. And then you had Miller pretty much displaying just an outright hostility to all of his Democratic questioners, you know, and saying that he at one point was the victim of a you know, a partisan attack and with a, a very demonstrable shift in tone when he was talking to a Republican versus a Democrat. So, you know, when amid all these questions and when you have at least the optics certainly look like the reason why we still don't know anything is because it's in these people's political interests to keep things kind of foggy and, and muddied and to not be the one to out Trump if there is something to out him about. Um, you you just also have this demeanor of people who have no interest in clarifying what happened and who are kind of using all the tools at their disposal to not answer specific questions that would clear it up. And, you know, because we still haven't had an independent commission that can, has subpoena power probably, um, and so Pelosi has proposed, or that can kind of focus on these things in a concentrated way. This is what we have. We just have trickles of information from these disparate congressional committees. And part of our base of knowledge is based on what people won't say as much as it is about what they will. 
is it generally the case that Miller, I mean, if if Rosen was basically sort of, you know, lo-fi trying to kind of semi-invoke privileges and just refused to answer, it sounds like Miller was was willing to answer. I mean, his answers may not have made sense. They may have been, you know, they may have been contradictory, but he wasn't refusing to answer questions, it sounds like. Yeah, I would say that's right. And, it, and it's also the case, just to remind everybody that, you know, the reason uh, a few days after he was defeated... President Trump fired his defense secretary and put this guy in. And something kind of similar happened with Bill Barr. So so it's not an accident that it's these two guys. They're basically chosen because he needs someone even more tractable than Bill Barr and his, I, I mean, I'm, I'm spacing on, on the actual confirmed defense secretary's name, but he needs, he needs people even more toady like than the toadies that he had already that he already had. Um, so it is. It is. Uh, I wonder if. Oh, I. You know. I, I. I wonder. You know. To what extent this will. You know. Galvanize things towards either having a commission or having some sort of more organized special committee to, you know, to, to get to the bottom of this. I mean, I don't expect it's almost too much to ask for Republicans to, to uh, be on board with investigating any of this. I mean, they did it, you know, it's sort of like, even in the constitution, we have a, we have a right against self-incrimination, right? I'm only half kidding it. it they did it. And they still support it. So, of course, they're not going to investigate it. That's kind of that's part of doing it is is you don't want to get caught for doing it. Um, but, it, it, you know, and unfortunately, I think there's there's um, there are definitely Democrats who are thinking like, man, we're trying to get an infrastructure bill through right now. <laughs> you know, we're not we, we don't want to kind of. Uh, you know, kind of. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm struggling with metaphors about you know lighting a bomb or torching the place. It's a little uncomfortable metaphor since that's kind of what we're talking about, right? That that was almost what happened. Um, yeah, it's still. I mean, let me let me say this. The one thing that I have, and this seemed to be partly what he was getting at in his prepared remarks that were released uh, sometime yesterday evening. Um, the one thing that actually seems credible to me is that one of the reasons they weren't totally prepared was that after the events of June, the Pentagon and the top brass in the military felt very burned by the president for, you know, for good reason. I mean, both, not just good reason burned by the president, but burned because they had done some really bad things. They had, they had basically allowed the president to, you know, mobilize the military as a political arm of his campaign, uh, you know, with all that stuff at the, what they call the church of the presidents, I think it's St. John's church, you know, that church right across the street from the white house, um, you know, mobilizing, I don't know if they were Apache helicopters, but you know, having helicopters, buzz protesters, all that kind of stuff that, I mean, look, we all remember there was, there was a lot of fear. Is he going to kind of go for the military at the last minute? either when they're certifying the votes or all this kind of stuff. And I, and I think at least that the mayor of DC, Mayor Bowser, actually said something like, hey, don't bring in a lot of military here. I mean, A, just don't do that. You know, you, this is a civilian area. And don't freak everybody out the way you did last time. So I'm not defending these people, but I certainly remember myself. There was, everybody was like on their guard. Is he going to do that again? So, and, and uh, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs actually issued what was sort of like an apology that he had kind of gone along with that stuff. So, it does kind of make sense to me that they were, you know, they had kind of pulled everything back and, and that it was a, maybe a little hard to kind of mobilize on a, on a split second. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't... Um, justify anything, you know, kind of life's hard. I mean, you got to, you got to deal with things regardless, but it's at least one possible part, you know, part of an explanation for why things shook out the way they did. Right. I mean, and to segue into the the Cheney ouster, which we also want to talk about, um, you know, on this committee and keep in mind this, this is house oversight. It 
happens to have some of the most bonkers Republicans in the House, which is obviously saying something, but I'm talking about like, you know, Paul Gosar type of Republicans who has been accused of uh, helping organize the Stop the Steal rally. But you had, you know, him and uh, Jody Heiss from Georgia who kind of opened up the questioning on the Republican side. And it was total, you know, alternate reality stuff. I mean, both kind of pushing the whole, it wasn't so violent, you know, uh, there's this whole right wing conspiracy theory um, around a partial quote from an FBI official during one of these congressional hearings where she said, to her knowledge, no firearms had been taken from the the rioters on the day of January 6th. Now, of course, just putting all else aside, we know law enforcement was so dismally outnumbered that they could barely arrest anyone who was coming out of the building. So it's not like a huge shock that they didn't recover weapons from people. And they didn't even really try. I mean, that was right. sort of the almost a, what it seems to be the strategy. Let's just get them out. Let's not right. let's not arrest people. Let everybody go. We'll, we'll pick them up later off Facebook, basically. Exactly. But even still, there are, you know, some reports that they did pick up some weapons from protesters and not necessarily guns, but, you know, people had uh, bats and flagpoles and things like that. But anyway, there's a whole kind of section of the right wing uh, world that runs with that partial quote to prove that the insurrection was not actually violent and that it's been kind of overhyped by hysterical liberals. Um, you know, and we had we watched Gosar today at this hearing describe Ashley Babbitt, the woman, the Trump supporter who was part of the riot, who was fatally shot by an officer when she was trying to kind of clamber through a broken window that would have put her into the speaker's lobby, which is the hallway that leads right into the House chamber. Um, he described her as a, quote, veteran wrapped in an American flag. And he described her killing as an execution. Um, and then, you know, you had Heist say it, it, it wasn't the Trump supporters that hurt anyone that day. You know, they were the ones being hurt, which is just such a wild, wild revision of that history that it's almost no wonder that, you know, we saw Cheney get booted today for saying that not only did this happen and it was violent, a premise that they don't even accept to begin with, but that also it was Trump's fault and Trump's allies' fault, which, of course, as you say, the likes of Paul Gosar is never going to want an investigation into that because he's one of those people who peddled the election conspiracy and right. may have even right. helped set up the event that turned into the violent mob. Well, it's also, I mean, one thing always to remember, and this is something that applies across our society, it applies in a lot of the, it, it is the subtextual issue in a lot of discussions about law enforcement and stuff like that, that violent or not, you're going to feel less threatened if you're, if they're your people, right? <laughs> if they're in, if, 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 if you're on the same team, you're not, I mean, Maybe they're not going to recognize people and maybe you're going to, you know, you're going to get hit over the head too. But again, it just, it stands to reason. You're not going to, you're not going to see it in the same light if they're your people. If they're coming there on your command, you're not thinking they're going to attack you because they're there to support you. Simple as that. Um Okay, so let's talk about it. we're 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 getting pretty deep into the episode. Uh, the Cheney thing was it was it telegraphed at all that there was not going to be a recorded vote, or did that just kind of happen and that's how it was? Yeah, not that I saw anyhow. Now, was was did you pick up anything in your reporting about? I mean, I know there was this thing. Uh, I don't know a report maybe thirty six hours ago that there was some kind of backlash building against McCarthy for how this all went down. Did you pick up any sense about concern about what the vote would be that that maybe she would have more supporters or that they just kind of you know kind of why this happened that they didn't have a, a a recorded vote they did it like a voice vote Well all I've picked up is not that the pushback against McCarthy is not because out of support for Cheney, but because people are chafing against the idea of kind of having a an heir apparent to Cheney blessed by the leadership without giving the rest of the caucus really much of a say. Um, and obviously that, right. heir, that heir apparent is um, Stefanik right now. And, you know, right. newer reporting. Maybe kind not, of, but maybe not for long. Right. Well, and newer reporting along <laughs> those lines is pointing that Chip Roy is considering running as well, who is, um, you know, kind of hard, from the hard right contingent. So really, a lot of the kind of opposition has been from this, you know, Freedom Caucus types who 
think that Stefanik is right. too moderate and who are pissed off that leadership picked Cheney's replacement without consulting them. So I don't think the tension was ever about will Cheney end up mustering enough votes to stay in because just based on kind of public statements from the types that you would think would support her, um, you know, it just it kind of looked like she was dead in the water. And the fact that she wasn't whipping looked like she had already right. kind of thrown in the towel ahead of time. So I think now the real tension point is, is Elise Stefanik too moderate for the House Republicans to get behind as their new conference chair. Though I did see, I have heard that her uh, her agreement to only serve one year may have kind of taken some of the wind out of those sails. But, you know, I think we still might see a kind of a hard right person put themselves forth as well. Well, yeah. So, I mean, and, and I think our understanding is, is that what what kind of broke the logjam and 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 doomed Cheney is that the, the leadership didn't want to have an 100 an percent white male leadership. Right. So that's why it was good to have Cheney and Stefanik step forward and they're like, okay, hey, we can put this together. We're not in this kind of bind anymore where, you know, we don't have that, you know, the caucus is dominated by by white men and we got another woman. And so, hey, we can suddenly it all works. And um, they kind of did it kind of as a package deal. And and they've at least it's at least it had seemed like. Um, it was, it was just done. They decided this is who it's going to be. And now they're, you know, now they're saying, uh, there's going to be a, what is it? An, an, an open house or a uh, kind of an impromptu town group hall, list, maybe. listening it, it section. Used, or, yeah, it used yeah. a really funny phrase like that. Yeah. I mean, you used to call these things like a cattle call, right? Everybody kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, when in, in primaries and stuff like that. Um, but you got to think that, Stefanik and I think McCarthy too know like, man, you better jam this thing through really fast because every hour that goes by, her position seems more tenuous. And it, you know, the funny thing, just for just for people who aren't really versed, which is a much more sane uh, way to be living in kind of what all these leadership offices mean and stuff like that. One of the kind of weirdly complicating factors is that a lot of people on the Hill don't even know what the conference chair does or even why it exists. It doesn't really have a brief. We know what the leader's job is. The leader's job is the leader of the caucus. The whip's job is, is the vote counter, the vote counter and the threatener, the person who keeps everybody in line. The conference chair is not even totally clear what that person does. So, so at some level, um, it gives everybody, I think, a little flexibility, kind of like who cares? At some level, since we don't even know what that person really does, but obviously, um, everybody wants a, everybody wants to be on the you know at the podium in the press conference. It's just a it's just a a high profile thing, and I would imagine that um, you know things can get things can kind of spin out of control if you have a few people jump in, and if a few people jump in, I strongly suspect that they're not going to want to have the vote on Friday. Because if you're getting in, you need a chance to get your ducks in a row and you need to line people up. Um, so I'm sure that Democrats would love this to kind of become like a whole like, you know, a whole leadership battle and a whole, you know, <laughs> when 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 the issue is the big lie, you know, and 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 then you're going to get sort of who's who's biggest on the big lie. Um, so, I mean, again, I, I still come back to I think it's a big deal. They didn't have a recorded vote because. The name, the name of the game in this Republican Party is you never disagree with the leader, and the leader is Donald Trump. It's almost like what is it? The Shahada, you know, the the uh, uh, Muslims have a have a uh, there's a word for the that the the proclamation of faith. There's uh, there's no god but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. They've got something, you know. Republicans now have something similar with Trump. There's no, you know, there's no god but Trump, and who's his prophet? Well. Everybody wants to, you know, to, to be uh, uh, Trump's prophet. So I don't know. I, 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 the idea that there is any, um, that there's any dissension is just something that's not cool. It's not, a, it's not enough to have a majority. You have to, everybody has to be completely unified behind Trump because that's, that's how it works in this Republican party. Right. And it, I don't know, it's just it's kind of a funny dynamic because like you say, this is probably you know, a political boon to Democrats, or at least Democrats won't, I don't think have any problem with intra GOP 
squabbling over this big conspiracy theory while they can be like, oh, we're hard at work passing infrastructure. You know, that's like what politicians love to do. But by the same token, I don't know anybody who looks at this situation as like, that's a healthy, flourishing democracy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, I think, I think, you know, it's often the case that people who are focused on DC, when there's, you know, some sort of turbulence within one caucus or one party, oh, this is terrible. And there's a, you know, there's, there's a, there's a divide and the parties divide. Generally speaking, no one really cares about, I mean, no one outside of that little bubble cares about that. I think what makes this a little different is that what the divide is about, the divide is about basically whether we have a democracy whether you are willing to admit that Joe Biden just won. Not what not that he lives at the White House. We get that. And even you can say, well, is he the president? Yeah, he's a president. Uh he's a legitimate president, but you know, he didn't really win because Trump won. It's about whether you just say, like, okay, he just won. No bullshit. No, 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 like, well, this and and whatever, whatever level of the big law you're talking about, just drop it. You lost. And that that's how, and that 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 is um, that that's how it works. And I and I do think um, it is a it is a very bad situation for the country. But because Democrats are trying to save the country, it is good and good. It is good politics and good to use those good politics to use this as an example of you need to not. Re- elect Republicans because they do insurrections and they don't and they don't accept the results of a free and fair election. So um, I think it does, you know, I, I think it I think it does matter. Um, anyway, I guess we should get to the question. Yeah. So we got a few versions of this question, um, but I'm going to read one from Andy who said, is it possible that Cheney thinks the Republican Party is in for a reckoning and is positioning herself to be the post Trump party leader? Yeah. <laughs> I think the, I, I think the answer is no, and there, it can be no on various different levels. I think uh, on the on the level of reality, no, that's not going to happen. I mean, you know, uh, it all depends on your time horizon, but uh, this is not going to shift, and suddenly uh, uh, Liz Cheney is positioned well for twenty twenty four. That that's just that's not reality. Um, one can maybe think a little differently that over time, uh, all of this will, you know, age poorly. And in, you know, over the years, she will be able to say, I was the one who stood on principle and stood up for our country. Um, I even think in the context of Republican politics, that even that is unfortunately I, I think a dubious proposition. My best guess is that this is kind of where she is and she feels good being in what she thinks is a position of principle and she's going to make the most of it, whether or not that really leads her to being a anything more than a kind of a righteous loser, basically. Um, I... I uh, I just don't think there's any realistic way where where in 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 any near term time horizon anything like that is going to happen, and I don't think she, she is so out of touch with reality that she thinks that it is. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's like you look at kind of these other nascent attempts to start up a third party or or to start up a the Republican Party of ye olden times. And I think the person who's done that probably most aggressively is Adam Kinzinger, um, a representative in the House who's definitely, um, you know, up there with Cheney, the most consistently outspoken against kind of Trumpism and the big lie and everything like that. And he started a super PAC specifically to get behind kind of anti-Trump Republican candidates to, as he describes it, to fight for the soul of the Republican Party. And I definitely don't want to make any grand sweeping conclusions from the special election in Texas's sixth district, which just happened, because I think there's been a preponderance of hot takes about the future of each party based on one special election that was, you know, shortly after we had a very big election. Um, and it was, you know, very low turnout. But the candidate that Kinsinger and his pack got behind finished in ninth place with three percent of the votes. So it doesn't look like there's a huge hunger from the party right now for people who buck Trump. And I think we're, we know that from the fact that almost every Republican who dares to break with the big lie is basically assumed to 
be up for a pretty big primary challenge, if not to retire or exit politics altogether. I am absolutely obsessed with the question of what happens to the party in the future. And in some ways, I think it's being saved from the electoral destruction that it would otherwise go through because of the massive structural advantages that Republicans have in our political system. You know, and just based on the fact that it's like pretty common wisdom that Democrats are going to lose at least the House in 2022. And a lot of that comes from just the the bare fact that redistricting alone is basically enough to wipe out the slim Democratic majority. So, you know, and then the Senate obviously is one of the most kind of unequal bodies because Republicans have such an advantage there, even though Democrats have, you know, the greater population advantage and everything. So I do honestly wonder what's going to happen to the Republican Party, which we saw under Trump lose the House, Senate and White House in four years. Clearly, it's not electorally popular to spread these conspiracy theories, but they have such a built-in advantage that I think the risk to Democrats to getting shut out of power is still enormous, even though we have a party that's currently today fighting with itself about how much lying it wants to be behind, you know, how much lie is enough lie to be the leadership of the Republican Party. That I have no idea. And if no, no new party is coming out of this rubble, I mean, our democracy seems to be in dire, dire danger. Yeah, I mean, there's, um, I mean, first of all, third parties are not a thing in the American political system. Right. And that is for, that is because of a basic structural thing about the presidency and first past the post elections. It's just, you know, it's not a, people talk about it a lot as though it is like, oh, you know, uh, new viewpoints, blah, blah. It's a structural thing. It is, it is baked into the structure of, of the constitution. Um, Conceivably, you could have party turnover where a new part, you know, like what happened in the 1850s. But I mean, there's a reason it hasn't happened since the 1850s when the country was really quite young. Um, and and the, the reality is that people who are, you know, think in sort of anti-Trump terms, anti-Trump conservatives, they just stop being Republicans. They become independents. And uh, a lot of them just end up voting for Republicans anyway, or they become independents or they become, you know, there's just, so it doesn't surprise me at all that, um, I mean, look, it, it, we know there's no appetite for anything but Trump in the Republican Party. There's just not. I mean, that is, that is just the reality. And even the people who are not down with Trump, partisanship pulls them along. So it's, 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 uh, you know, it's funny. It's it's even even the headlines about like divisions in the Republican Party. There really aren't many divisions in the Republican Party. They're actually surprisingly united. Even the even the Cheney stuff is sort of like you know there aren't really many policy kind of disagreements on on stuff. So there's just there's just not much. And and um and to, to the point you were making, Kate. You know, it's really hard. You know, what possible incentive do Republicans have to think like, hey, we're really kind of getting out of line with public opinion here. You know, we're we're kind of out on a out on a limb here when they have every expectation that they're going to have a big election next time based on all this crap. And no one's thinking, you know, even though at to your point, no one's thinking, even though there's no redistricting, that that Democrats are going to like have a windfall in the Senate and get you know and pick up like eight seats or something like that. I mean, they'll they'll. I think there's a decent chance they'll hold on to their majority, but. You know, so yes, it's a it's a bad situation, and I think the answer is no. There's no chance that she is that there's going to be some reckoning, and that she is going to be the the new leader of the Republican Party. And again, I don't think she is so out of touch with reality that she thinks otherwise. Yeah. So I want to move on to our last question, which is from Jesse, which is what happens to the GOP if Trump's health goes not necessarily dies, but has a heart attack or a stroke. Uh, some sort of major health incident were to happen, who in the GOP is going to jump ship first? What if he gets better after? Um, which I think is such a fascinating question. Yeah. I mean, I it's I think the answer to it is pretty clear because, first of all, I don't think there's any jumping ship. It's maybe starting to change a little bit now because there's this whole thing, Trump's kind of reemerging. He's do, doing more appearances and stuff like that. But I think by, you know, and he's got his blog, He's attacking people, but I think by and large, it's it's fairly similar to what it's been like since the election. That Trump is out there kind of as an idea, 
he's not he's not on most people's radar. He he's he's you know you see it in terms of like Google searches and stuff. Most of the countries just moved on. They're not thinking about Trump. So you know and and uh he maintained a total hold even for that first couple months when he was like you hadn't heard his voice and and he didn't have his blog so you didn't hear anything from him i think if trump were incapacitated or his health declined in a way that he clearly couldn't serve as president again or if he died i don't think it would i don't think it would change much because i think he has made clear what the line is, what the Trump line is, and that you have to be for it. Now, it would certainly, it would certainly set off a, a contest about who the leader of the party is, but it would be the leader of the party, you know, kind of going back to the sort of the, uh, and I, I, I apologize uh, if, this is, if this sounds um, off to our 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 Muslim listeners, it's not meant out of out, out of any disrespect. It just it seems like a kind of an obvious analogy for how Republicans see Trump. It would be sort of like a, a, a caliph kind of thing, right? They wouldn't they wouldn't be the new they wouldn't be the new Trump. They would be sort of his emissary, his you know the 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 custodian of Trumpism. So I don't think it would make that big a difference. I, if anything, I think it would even it, it would just make things smoother. Because the one big problem for those folks with Trumpism is that he's constantly doing new weird shit. And if he were sort of incapacitated or no longer on the political scene, they would at least have less unpredictability. So I really don't think it would change much. It would just start off that battle about, um, you know, who is the chosen custodian of Trumpism. So as I was thinking through this, I was thinking about why... Do people adhere to the Trump line so closely? And a big part of it is that they know how powerful he is and that they know he can basically destroy your career in the Republican Party with one, well, I guess they're not tweets anymore, with one statement from the desk of the president. Um, And so if he were incapacitated, that degree of it would be taken away. The fear of being ostracized by Trump, you know, of having him kind of go cold on you and put out a tweet that you're a rhino and make your life really difficult. But even if Trump weren't to be able to do that anymore, I think everything the Republican Party has done since he got out of power shows that they are, they've decided to put all their chips in on Trump supporters and are loath to do anything to alienate them. Because the fear of Trump is really the fear of his supporters, the fear of uh, conjuring up a, a primary challenger or of not getting the MAGA people to vote for you so you don't have enough votes with the Republicans that are left. And they wouldn't go anywhere no matter what happened to Trump. Um, but the interesting question to me is like kind of people like the QAnon set or people who they don't have any ideology or they don't have any ideology that really fits with the Republican Party. And if you look at some of this stuff, you know, they'll say things about they'll lump in Mitch McConnell with Democrats. They just don't see the division like that. Their sole political Mm -hmm. loyalty is to Trump the man, Trump himself. That's all. And I would be fascinated to see what would happen to kind of that set, the set that Trump activated, who are not generally politically keyed in people. What happens to them when Trump goes away? Because I don't think we can say conclusively that we've really seen any evidence that it's, you know, that being a Trump is enough to win that loyalty. We haven't really seen, they don't have, they don't seem to hold, you know, Don Jr. to the same regard that they hold (laughs) Trump Sr. So, you know, what uh, it's so interesting to me, do those people just stop, you know, go back to other conspiracy theories and stop paying attention to U.S. politics? You know, I just I don't know what happens to them. Have they been subsumed into the Republican Party and now we'll just kind of vote with the party of Trump for the rest of their lives? I think we don't know because we haven't really seen a comparable event like this. Right. So I you know, my sense is, and you kind of alluded to this, that it's sort of self-enforcing now. Like, I'm not sure right. Trump needs to kind of call you out because what we've seen is when anybody sort of, you know, goes renegade, everybody comes forward like, oh, you're not defending Trump enough. You're not, I'm totally, I'm, I'm, I am a hundred percent Trump. I love Trump. You know, you see it with St- uh, Stefanik, 
right? You just it, sort of the other people will come forward and, and speak in Trump's name. I mean, he said a couple things now in her, in her, you know, he's supporting her. But I'm not sure this situation would look that different if he had been mum, right? I mean, he, if you, if you, if you move out of line, uh, everybody will come forward and said, you're, you're betraying Trump. And, and, and in this Republican party, that's kind of, you know, that's, that's it. That's, that you're done. So, um, I mean, clearly over time, you need some sort of succession, but I'm not, I, it's, I feel like what was implicit in the question is that once he's gone, either gone in the ultimate sense or kind of just, you know, sort of off the political scene, that he's no longer there to sort of discipline people, to punish them, and people will kind of go back to being regular Republicans, you know, jump ship. And I just don't, I just don't see that. This isn't, that doesn't, um, I think at least in the relatively near term, that doesn't seem likely to me because it's, it's, it's self, it's self-enforcing now. Um, the, the sort of the, the minions have, you know, they, they, they sort of autonomously mean tweet on Trump's behalf and take the people down who stray. So on that note, the answer. (laughs) <laughs> On that note, indeed. Well, remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off your first order. Go to Grady'sColdBrew.com and use the promo code TPM. And great questions this week. Keep sending them in to talk at TalkingPointsMemo.com. Yeah, no, we got a lot of great ones, so keep them coming. All right. Thanks, Later. guys. Later.